Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hello, everybody. My name is Erwin Kishner, and today I'm proud to work with my colleagues, Jen Polevsky, Phil Sanchez, and Daniel Etna, in presenting stadium development with a particular emphasis on eminent domain. Just so to have a brief introduction of, of my colleagues here, Erwin Kishner, I am the chairman of the executive committee at Herrick Feinstein and co-chair of our sports law department. Uh, I personally have worked on many, many different stadium developments over the decades. Uh, I have done so uh, often hand in hand with my partner and colleague, Daniel Etna, who also co-chairs our sports practice. Um, that representation has embodied many, many different forms and elements of stadium development from the initial financing structure to the acquisition to the development to the actual transferring of, uh, of, of operations over to the new stadium, to concession services agreements, naming rights agreements, community relations developments, and a whole host of other issues all associated with stadium development. I'm also here today with Jen Polevsky and Phil Sanchez, the co-chairs of Herrick's eminent domain practice, um, both Jen and Phil have tremendous experience in the eminent domain legal field, but also have particular emphasis and abilities in the context of sports developments. And they have acted on behalf of uh, several of those developments over the years. Just to kick the topic off, anytime you're developing a stadium, it is critically important, obviously, to figure out uh, where that stadium is going to be. There are many ways of acquiring that land from outright purchase to in, in less densely populated areas, which then you'll need to obviously consider all of the infrastructure that needs to go in place with a stadium development to uh, lend lease type situations where you'll have a ground lease and an operating lease. Um, which is then leased uh, usually to a government entity, which then subleases it to a uh, owner operator of the stadium, often the sports team ownership. And then obviously there are very densely populated areas where you need to undertake the principle of, of eminent domain. And we'll be getting into that as we move forward. I think one thing to just call out before I turn it over to my partner, Dan, is that today and what we're seeing today are hybrid models of all of those three aspects. We are seeing projects where uh, sports teams and ownership are actually purchasing land and uh, looking to get the you know, requisite government approvals and finance structures in place. We're seeing parts of the country where um, there is this lend-lease type situation or this lend-lease structure that I described just moments ago. And there are also areas where eminent domain is coming into play. So we're seeing that in real time now. Uh, the development of sports stadiums and sports properties is a very active area. It's going around in a number of different developments around the country. And um, it's, it's a very relevant topic to anybody that um, is, is following those types of issues. 
So, Dan, why don't I turn it over to you and uh, you can talk a little bit about uh, the first steps of stadium development. Sure. Thank you, Erwin, very much for uh, for the introduction. As a preliminary matter, when we're talking about a stadium or arena project, the first point is acquiring the land, figuring out where is this arena or stadium going to be situated. A lot of factors come into play there, um, including what type of environmental issues there might be, the ability of uh, patrons to get to and from the stadium or arena via public transit, via, via uh, car, uh, etc., and also um, the uh, population density uh, of the area in question often dictates um, how the stadium or arena development project will will be undertaken. Um, you take a look at a state like New York, where stadium development for the most part uh, is in more urban areas. Uh, we're talking about Yankee Stadium, for example, City Field, the Barclays Center. Um, and less so in densely populated areas, uh, for example, the Buffalo Bills uh, new stadium that's being undertaken um, is, is outside of a, a densely populated area. But depending upon what part of the country you're in, uh, you, you may see uh, stadium and arena projects in, in less densely populated areas. However, I think it's safe to say in a state like New York, um, the the gravitational pull is to be in more more urban areas for these type of projects. Also, it's just worth noting quickly that these situations involve a multitude of issues. I touched upon environmental. Uh, also, oftentimes, if you're receiving some sort of governmental assistance, uh, the government may may ask for certain things uh, from the developers in terms of uh, job guarantees, um, complying with wage statutes. Uh, entering into community benefit agreements, uh, et cetera. And uh, at this juncture, uh, Jen and Phil have handled broad range of eminent domain matters with respect to developers uh, in the sports and stadium development arenas. And at this point, I would like to kick it over to Phil and Jennifer to talk us through the history of how eminent domain has been used uh, in situations where you're in a uh, more of a densely populated area, there isn't just acres of land available and you need you need property upon which to build. Hi, everyone. Philip Sanchez. I've been doing eminent domain exclusively for now going on 23 years. I have done no other real estate or litigation practice besides eminent domain. And I like to start off talking about what eminent domain is, what it does. And in this instance, I'm going to start a little differently. The reason why governments use eminent domain specifically for stadiums is because the government gets to take free and clear of any liens and encumbrances on the property. That's what makes eminent domain so powerful for stadium development. The government gets to come in, take all the property it needs by eminent domain, and it gets that property free and clear. It can transfer it to the developer. It can transfer it to the stadium developer with no encumbrances Nothing. So when the property is taken by eminent domain and immediately transferred over, it becomes e much more easily developable than as if you had to go through the entire process of clearing those liens, of clearing all the encumbrances on title. That's the reason, that's the initial way I want to start this podcast. That's the reason why you use eminent domain. What is eminent domain? Eminent domain is government power that has existed since William the Conqueror. It's over a thousand years. It is one of the oldest powers of government. The traditional rule of eminent domain is bridges, tunnels, roadways, airports. Now we add stadiums and high-speed internet to that mix. But that's the traditional root of what eminent domain is. All those things are the core of eminent domain. 
However, in New York State, it's a lot more expansive than that. Than that. In New York State, eminent domain is the government's ability to take property for any valid public purpose. This could include increasing the tax base, building a stadium. Any valid public purpose in New York is totally acceptable. It's a very expansive definition of eminent domain. It includes increasing tax bases. It allows new stadiums. And it most certainly qualifies, for instance, Barclays Center, one of the ones that Jen and I worked on, most certainly qualifies as a valid public purpose. In this instance, like I said, we've been involved in Barclays. We were somewhat involved in City Field. But the key issues here is, one, government's ability to take the property and clear the property. That's the most important thing for developers and for stadium owners or, or would-be stadium owners. The ability to get that property free and clear of any encumbrances. The ability to remove all the tenancies that are in there. You Generally, when there are stadiums, you have a lot of retail stores. You have some industrial. A lot of times you have self-storage. You have self-storage facilities. You can clear all those out pretty quickly. Once the power of eminent domain is approved for the state entity or the city entity that is going to use or assist in developing that site for a stadium. It moves very quickly. That's what most people don't understand. What most most understanding of this is when eminent domain is authorized, it can move very rapidly. Once the approval is there, the stadium development, the, the, the construction can take place relatively quickly after that eminent domain has been approved. They can clear the site a lot faster using eminent domain than if they had to individually go to each property owner and each tenant, commercial tenant, and try to buy them out or try to get them to leave. The second part of this is the valuation issue of eminent domain. Eminent domain, when, they're, when it is used for development, such as Barclays Center, the impacted properties get paid highest and best use regardless of what's there. And this could be a very expensive proposition. You have certain properties that are surrounding potential stadium areas that may not be fully utilized. You may have parking lots. You may have a small one or two story office tower, when in reality, they could be 10 or 15 story residential towers or 10 or 15 or more story commercial office towers. Those can be significantly more expensive. And that's what has to be considered when we're talking about stadium development. These additional costs for highest and best use can be significant. It could turn what would normally be expected a 30 to $50 million cost to 100 to $250 million cost. The cost can go up exponentially. And that's not even factoring in purchasing, or I should say, when they take over the buildings, the tenancies in each of those buildings get paid for their trade fixtures. And that's an additional cost. These All these costs have to be factored into stadium development. It was certainly factored in Barclays because the cost went up very quickly. And Jen and I worked on a number of those cases. The developers need to know and factor this in. Because what normally happens is the city of New York or the state of New York decides it's going to build a stadium outside of Buffalo, a stadium outside of Syracuse. So I'm just using hypothetical, stadium outside of Albany. And they're going to transfer that. Once they take the property by eminent domain, they're going to transfer it to a developer. But the developer, for the most part, or the stadium developer, is on the hook for those costs. they got to understand those costs can include significantly more than just existing use of the properties and the tenancies of the tenants in those spaces. Those costs can go up fairly rapidly. I'm going to turn it over to Jen at this point because she can talk more specifically about the case we had at Barclays Center and the tenants and the landowners that we represented in Barclays. Otherwise, I can keep talking all afternoon. Thanks, Phil. 
Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jennifer Polovetsky. I'm the co-chair of Herrick's Eminent Domain Practice Group. Uh, I've been practicing eminent domain law for approximately 22 years. I started my career at the City of New York Corporation Counsel's Office, um, taking property for public use on behalf of the City of New York. And after a few years, I went over to private practice to the claimant side where I've been working ever since. I'm going to talk briefly about the Barclay Center project because it's really one of the most interesting examples of stadium development in recent New York history. The brief history of Barclay Center, in around 2003, um, Bruce Ratner from Forest City Ratner met former mayor Mike Bloomberg and said, hi, you know, I would like to build an arena and about 15 to 16 towers in this area, which comprised about 22 acres. Some of it was public land, some of it was private land. And the mayor said, let's do it. The area is blighted and let's bring economic development to the area. And thus the project began. It happened in a couple of phases. Um, overall, I, I believe, according to reports, that there were about over $200 million spent on the project, probably more um, as it went on. Phil and I were involved in, in a few cases there. One of the cases that still touches my heart <laughs> that um, we, we handled um, was at 666 Pacific Avenue. And the, uh, the owner of that property and his, his siblings were the, the children of a Holocaust survivor. And their father had come over, um, you know, many years earlier and started a fabric business on the Lower East Side. He was a fabric merchant and, you know, he made it. He, he survived the Holocaust. He lived the American dream. He made it. And he bought this, you know, multi-story warehouse at uh, 666 Pacific Avenue, you know, right in the heart of what would then become the Berkeley Center Atlantic Yards redevelopment project. And he bought it for his family and his son followed in his footsteps and he became a fabric merchant. And when we met this client who was the property owner and also the fix trade fixture claimant because he ran his business out of there, uh, he operated out of a multi-story warehouse. And back to what Phil said, um, just because it was a multi-story warehouse when it was taken, doesn't mean that that was the highest and best use. It was taken by eminent domain, despite his, you know, best efforts to stop it, despite his objections, despite him, you know, asking, what is this, the Soviet Union? How can, how can, you know, you, you just lose property here to the government? But it was a public use. The area was in fact lighted and they were building this beautiful new arena there and they wanted to build residential housing and, and commercial stores and retail stores and all of these things. So although um, his property was taken by eminent domain, we were able, after significant number of years of litigation, to get him significantly more money than what was initially offered because um, the highest and best use for that property was definitely not the existing use. And, um, you know, even if you have a multi-story warehouse and you think, well, what what could you do with this? Well, it might have FAR, you know, increased floor area ratio. You can always build up. And then remember, if the city is taking by eminent domain, then the city can go ahead and rezone it. They can rezone the whole area. They can rezone the property. They can rezone it to build whatever it is that they need to build to further their redevelopment plan. And that's exactly what happened here. Um, it was sad in the sense that the property had been in his family for a number of years. There's actually a New York Times article written about it. 
But it ended up being happy because we got him and his family, you know, the just compensation that they deserve. So although people wonder how does eminent domain go hand in hand with stadium development, it goes hand in hand quite often when you have overpopulated, densely populated areas because there's just no more room in the city to build. So in order to build new, sometimes you have to demolish the old. Jen, I have a question for you. Um, sure. You know, what we're seeing today in stadium development are uh, stadiums which are the focal point of a grander, much grander redevelopment where you'll see mm-hmm. hospitality, you, you'll see retail, you'll see entertainment, you might even see uh, residential that's associated with the focal point being the stadium. Uh, you're talking about highest and best use, which I, I understand, but is that a judgment call that's made solely by the government or is somebody uh, else uh, able to, if you will, question that judgment as to, you know, w- whether they, that property can be taken and not moved, call it six feet to the right? Or uh, how is that? How does that all work in the context of eminent domain? That's actually a very, very good question. Um, so the government will file a petition. Of, it, it, if it's a city taking, which usually these are, are city takings. Uh, so let's, let's say it's a city of New York taking. They'll, they'll file a petition after going through all the notice requirements. They file a court petition. They file maps. They own the property. They pay what's called an advance payment, which is kind of a misnomer because it's not paid in advance. It's, it's paid after. Uh, and that is the amount of the government's highest approved appraisal. So let's go back to the warehouse example. I'm not going to talk about specific numbers from that case, although it is public record, but I'm just going to give fake numbers out just for just for purposes uh, of this discussion. So we're going back to the warehouse. So the government comes in and they say, okay, we've done appraisals. We've done multiple pre-taking appraisals. And our appraiser has determined that the value of this property is $1 million. I'm just making up a number. It's $1 million. And we say, okay, thank you. We will take that as an advance payment, even though it's paid in arrears with interest at 6% per annum. And we will reserve our right to file a claim for additional compensation. So Phil and I go ahead and we file a claim in court. And then we have the client meet with an eminent domain appraiser. There are a few that we use um, who are very knowledgeable in this. Generally, they have to be an MAI-designated appraiser, Masters of Appraisal Institute. And we introduce the client to a few appraisers and see who they like best. They're all highly qualified. They're all equally qualified. Just depends. You know, some people jive with some people and some people don't. And, you know, they, they pick an appraiser. And then our appraiser does his or her own appraisal. Uh, lots of times we'll get a zoning analysis from a zoning expert. Um, because all you have to do in eminent domain is sh- if you're saying that the current zoning is not the zoning that would be under the highest and best use, all you have to do is prove a reasonable probability of rezone, which is almost like a preponderance of the evidence standard. That's more likely than not that a rezone would be granted. You cannot use the influence from the project in your rezone, so you have to pretend that the project never happened. So you say, let's pretend this project never happened, and I had this warehouse, and I was going to redevelop it myself. What would the highest and best use be? If the appraiser and the zoning expert go ahead and say, well, you know, right now it's a three-story warehouse, but it could be 
a 10-story residential apartment building, you know, with retail on the bottom, and we have the zoning letter that shows, and we can prove a reasonable probability of rezone, and we file our own appraisal, and our appraisal says it's worth $3 million. Well, now we have a little bit of a fight on our hands because we're not just accepting the government's number and their analysis. Sometimes we have the same analysis as to the highest and best use, and sometimes we have completely different analyses than the government as to the highest and best use. They can say that the highest and best use is the existing use, and there's no other better use. And we can say, but no, we can get it rezoned, and you can build a 10-story tower. So it's worth not $1 million, it's worth $3 million, or it's worth $5 million, you know, whatever. Jill, I actually have a question for you. There must be some level of reasonableness standard that the government has to, I guess, prove before taking a property, or, or is it some unilateral right that's, uh, as you said, bestowed from the times of William the Conqueror? It's, it's, it actually is a unilateral right that's over a thousand years old, and specifically in New York State. Other states have really, since the Little Pink House, Kelo in Connecticut, Case in Connecticut, they really restricted 48 of the 50 states have restricted the ability to use eminent domain, in some cases dramatically. Some of them have gone back to the traditional bridge, tunnel, roadway, airport, that's it. They won't allow stadium development in other states. They just won't allow you to use eminent domain for that. They won't allow eminent domain to be used solely for a private benefit. A number of states have really gotten rid of that. But New York State is completely open-ended. Any valid public purpose, any valid articulated public purpose in the state, city, town, county's papers is valid. In fact, in one of the few cases that I've seen in the all the years I've been, the 23 years I've been doing this, they did not articulate a valid public purpose. It was, I think, it was about a year ago in the city of White Plains. It was a it was a case where the White Plains Hospital was going to expand and take the buildings across the street, but they didn't articulate the use of the properties. They just said, we're going to take them for a project at some point in the future and do something with them. And when you looked at the actual paperwork, they just said, some project to do something. There was no articulated public purpose, and they could not do it. Anywhere else in New York, if you want to build a stadium, if Columbia University wanted to expand, as long as it's a valid public purpose and they have a state or a municipal entity that can use the power of eminent domain, it can be done. It's that open-ended. Thank you very much, Phil. Uh, Dan, you know, have any concluding thoughts on the future of these developments? As I mentioned, you and I are working on a number of these mixed-use, I call them mixed-use developments, where eminent domain is, is coming into play uh, often and sometimes not. What do you see as the future of, of stadium development uh, over the next, call it, 12 to 24 months? Uh, well, Erwin, I think you uh, really hit the nail on the head with, when you talked about mixed-use developments. I think that's really what is trending now and is going to be part of the landscape going forward where it's not just having a stadium, but it's a stadium and hotel and a retail sector and restaurants, retail shopping, et cetera. It's, it's not just about the team anymore. And uh, I think that given the, uh, the public backlash in certain uh, areas about uh, government funding of, uh, of, of sports projects, that the, the eminent domain power um, is is going to be an important um, and can continue to be a very important tool um, in the stadium development uh, uh, work box. And indeed, you know, we're seeing some of our clients that have recently concluded stadium projects where part of their um, arrangement with the government is that adjacent parcels of land were also included in the the set aside for the team 
so that uh, those parcels could be developed at a later date into some sort of hotel retail type of establishment. Yeah, there's there's no question that that's what's going on, and I indeed agree with you fully, Dan, that we're going to continue to see this uh, proliferate over the next, call it, two, three, four, five years. Uh, it, it is a formula that seems to work. It seems to produce uh, great economic returns. It seems to be producing uh, employment, jobs, high level and, and, and otherwise, and uh, actually seems to be really a, a great creator of, of value through our system. Um, well, I, I see now that we're, we're running out of time. Um, if you do have any further questions about stadium development in general, or the role of eminent domain in the stadium process or, or otherwise in particular, please feel free to reach out to any one of us. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.